Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. What are we watching today, Ben? Well, Sarah, uh, it's pretty special today. We are watching 1939's Son of Frankenstein, the sequel to Bride of Frankenstein, which of course was also the sequel to Frankenstein. And Son of Frankenstein was the movie that brought the horror genre back to life after three years of basically no genre movies being made anywhere in the world anywhere. Yeah, we just did a three-year jump from 36. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with the genre being revived, brought back to life by Son of Frankenstein... It's alive! Right, exactly. Now I know what it feels like to be God. Um... We'll have to cut that one out for the code. Um, (laughs) I thought it would be good to sort of remind our viewers about the first two Frankenstein movies and sort of where they fit into the horror canon. Kind of a last time on Scream scene. Sure. Before I can talk about the films, though, we have to go into the past to talk about the novel Frankenstein. Sure. Frankenstein was written in 1816 on a dare from Lord Byron. As many things in 1816 were done. Percy and Mary Shelley went to Lake Geneva with their friends John Polidori, Lord Byron, and her stepsister Claire Claremont. Every time you say her stepsister's name, all I can think of is... X-Men. Oh, oh, my favorite X-Men writer, Claire Claremont. (laughs) So the year 1816 was kind of coined the year without a summer because of a volcano in Indonesia erupting and causing unnaturally cold weather um, and also frequent thunderstorms. So it meant a very spooky summer vacation um, with only their imaginations to entertain them. With Lord Byron's dare, Mary set out to write a story that embodied what she called the mysterious fears of our own nature. And she would include themes of failed parenthood, relationships between child and parent, capital R, romantic terror, so like in full awe of the terrible thing that is before you, kind of capital R romantic. The novel as written has a framing device with this captain sailing through the North Pole and they discover Victor Frankenstein in the North Pole, and they bring him aboard because he's sick with pneumonia. And as the captain is uh, taking care of Frankenstein, he shares his story about his ambition to create life in an artificial way um, and studying alchemy in college and how everything went wrong from there. So through these alchemical experiments, Victor Frankenstein creates this creature out of corpses, which makes the creature look like a living corpse, and upon giving it life, Victor freaks the fuck out and runs away. And it's this abandonment that is taken to be Frankenstein's principal failure in the original 1818 version. Thinking, okay, I'll just leave college behind, um, I'm kind of ill, let's go home. Let's go back to Switzerland and forget about what the heck happened in Germany. 
on a walk in the wilderness, he meets up with this creature, and the creature, speaking, explains to Frankenstein that he learned to talk by watching this family in the woods, and learned to read from John Milton's Paradise Lost. The creature does talk about befriending this blind man in a cottage, but when the blind man's family returns, the creature gets run out, and it's at this point that the creature swears revenge on his creator for bringing him into a world that hates him. It's also at this point that the creature demands a mate, because if I'm going to be hated in this world, I better not be alone. So Victor succumbs to this demand, but halfway through doing it, decides against it, fearing basically that the two creatures will mate and propagate and overrun mankind. Because he goes back on his word, uh, on Victor's wedding night with his now wife Elizabeth, the creature comes in, murders Elizabeth, and kind of destroys the rest of the family. And now with nothing around him, Victor feeling completely alone, he himself vows revenge on his creature and tracks him to the North Pole, which kind of brings us back to the beginning of the novel with that first framing device. Um, in the midst of telling this story, Victor dies, and the creature shows up on the ship and tells the captain that after all of this revenge, seeing his creator now dead, seeing his father now dead, doesn't actually make him feel better. Nothing's actually fixed. And so the creature wanders back out into the tundra, presumably to die, and that is the end of the novel. This story made for excellent movie material for 1931's Frankenstein. To follow up Dracula, Carl Lemley Jr. bought John Balderston's play adaptation of Shelley's novel. Originally, the plan was to have Bela Lugosi as Victor Frankenstein, um, but there was some changes in the production of the film, and about a month after production started, Lugosi was now to play the creature. At the time, the director was Robert Flory, uh, and he planned a kind of German Expressionist-inspired look of the film and of the creature with makeup artist Jack Pierce. The test footage did not go over well with Lemley Jr. and led to Flory and Lugosi being kicked off the project. Meanwhile, an up-and-coming British director in Universal Studios was offered his choice of projects, and he chose to take on Frankenstein. James Whale brought on Colin Clive and Mae Clark to play Henry Frankenstein and Elizabeth, respectively. Boris Karloff would get his big break at age 44 as the creature and would actually work with Jack Pierce to design the creature's look. The best example of this, which I think is really sweet, is Karloff taking out his dental plate to give the creature kind of a gaunt look. The 1931 Frankenstein would gross $12 million at the box office. Let me tell you what it's about. The film opens with Henry Frankenstein and his assistant, Fritz, stealing corpses for these macabre experiments. Henry unknowingly puts in a criminal, abnormal brain into the creature and figures out a way to bring the creature to life. Meanwhile, fiancé Elizabeth and Frankenstein's friend Victor 
are worried about Henry, so they track him down through his mentor, Dr. Waldman. Eventually, they track Henry down to this decrepit castle and are there in time to see the creature brought to life. And what's interesting is, in the novel, it's when the creature is brought to life that Frankenstein abandons the creature. But in the film, Frankenstein almost seems happy to be a parent. Like, he seems to take joy out of, like, teaching the creature how to do things and does not abandon his creature. Waldman sticks around trying to help Henry with teaching the creature and teach the creature humanity, most of it being undone by Fritz's abuse. When Fritz is killed in self-defense, Waldman sends Henry home to rest from this trauma, and the creature kills Waldman and escapes. While Henry is recovering with Elizabeth and kind of planning their wedding, the creature is wandering through the forest, and he meets this little girl named Maria, and accidentally kills her, basically. It's kind of a killing out of ignorance. The town is put into a panic while the creature comes and terrorizes Elizabeth. Henry helps the ensuing mob track down the creature, and this tracking of the creature all ends in a climax. The mob outside has trapped the two men in the windmill, and they set it on fire, and the creature, because of the fire going on and a lot of panic, attacks Henry, uh, and the last we see of the creature is being burned up in this windmill. Then there is an epilogue at the end of the film that shows Henry recovering in bed, that everything's fine. And it should be noted that that epilogue of Henry surviving that whole experience was added afterwards. Originally, Whale had intended Henry to die, uh, but it was kind of deemed a little bit too dark. But it did open things up for a sequel. As far as the 1931 film goes, we did appreciate the film stepping up the macabre, but we noted that its strength was more in the beginning before Henry leaves to kind of plan the wedding in the second half. Whale goes to great lengths to make both the creature and Frankenstein sympathetic, so much so that there's no real specific villain, but the film still really works with this. The creature is almost not at fault for his violent tendencies because he has a criminal brain. It's not really his fault that he's acting this way. But we talked a lot about how that created a theme of the horror being the cycles of abuse. We see Henry's dad belittling him, Henry belittling Fritz, Fritz tormenting the creature, and the creature murdering others out of self-defense or ignorance. The other thing that we really brought up when talking about the film was how the creature is serving as an allegory for being an outsider in society. Um, that is, being an outsider in a world that hates you, and we tied that experience to James Whale and Colin Clive as gay men in the 30s. And we would see these themes kind of continue into Bride of Frankenstein in 1935, including this kind of melodramatic macabre tone. Whale wasn't too keen about returning to do Bride four years later, but Carl Lee Jr. said, I'll let you make one more river in 1934 if you make Bride for me. And so Whale agreed. Not happy with the prior treatments, Whale brought on John Balderston again for a script, and then handed that to playwright William J. Hurlbut to flesh out the plot. 
because Bride focuses on the other half of the novel that wasn't really touched by the first film, namely the creature demanding a mate, the creature needed to speak in this film. And so it was decided that the creature would have kind of a mental age of 10 and an emotional age of 15. Jack Pierce returned and altered the creature's appearance to show damage from that windmill fire. He also had to change the look of the creature because Karloff needs his dental plate in to talk, and that means that the creature no longer has those kind of gaunt cheeks. As for the cast, Colin Clive returned despite his alcoholism debilitating his performance. We talked about how when you only see him in like over-the-shoulder shots, there's a good chance he's passed out and is just being propped up. McClurk does not return due to ill health, so Elizabeth was recast with 18-year-old Valerie Hobson. We also had the new original character of Dr. Septimus Praetorius, set to be villain, played by Ernest Thysaker, who well wanted to embody the campy caricature of a, quote, bitchy, aging homosexual. Elsa Lancaster also joined the cast, and she would play Mary Shelley in the film's prologue, as well as the bride herself. After some difficulties with the code, stemming from Frankenstein's god complex and some religious themes and imagery, Bride would open in 1935 and would earn $2 million at the box office. So Bride of Frankenstein opens with this prologue where Mary Shelley is sitting with Lord Byron and Percy Shelley as if they are at this summer vacation at Lake Geneva. And this is so they can kind of go over the plot of the first Frankenstein. After that, we kind of kick off right where the first film left off. The windmill has just completely burned down and the creature busts out of it. He is not dead. After his miraculous survival of the windmill, we follow the creature going through the woods, still kind of terrorizing some people, but eventually he stumbles upon this cottage uh, where this blind hermit lives. Now, given that he's blind, he doesn't see the creature and is not frightened, um, but he's also quite kind and compassionate, and he helps the creature kind of heal, and also teaches the creature some words, so now he can speak. At the same time as seeing the creature go into the woods, we are following Henry getting ready to marry Elizabeth, but an old mentor of his, Dr. Praetorius, comes into town and is trying to drag him back into the game, as it were, to help with some experiments. Praetorius says that he can fully develop a good brain, so he just needs Henry to create the body to put the brain into. The creature at the cottage with the hermit is having a grand old time, and then some people come by, see that it's a creature, runs him out, and that kind of happiest time in his life is cut short. He's hunted and hounded throughout this whole time, um, eventually seeking refuge in a crypt where he meets Pretorius, and Pretorius, knowing who the creature is, manipulates the creature into helping Praetorius get Henry to create a mate. They succeed, and the bride is amazing. I will never get over how cool she is. Uh, just, like, her whole look is so cool. Um, the creature's like, great, a lady. Hugs, 
want to be mates, and she is not into it, um, and this is so distressing to the creature that he states that we, as in Henry Pretorius himself, the bride, belong dead. And pulls a lever, explodes the castle. Originally, everyone was going to die, but in the editing room, Henry is saved yet again, and he escapes with Elizabeth, and it's all fine. What I think is interesting is we talked about how Whale felt he could not do better in making a horror movie than Frankenstein, so he opted to make Bride a, <laughs> I think you quoted him as saying, a memorable hoot. <laughs> and he definitely achieves this by making this the first film that we've covered that brings together the horror genre, queer culture, the fetishization of death and skulls, etc., and goth culture, and the melodramatic fun in camp. Um, you made a really great point of how those four spheres of horror, queer culture, goth culture, and camp kind of coalesce in Bride. Between the dialogue, the expressionist artificial sets, and the overdramatic music, there's a lot going on in Bride. Everything is kind of cranked to 11, and I think that's like the title of that episode. But Whale goes further from the first Frankenstein by making the gay subtext practically just straight text in Bride, um, with heteronormativity as the fear. And Ben, you went on a, a very well-articulated point of how the only two successful relationships are between uh, people of the same gender. The creature continues from the first film to be a metaphor for outcasts of society, but it's as if Whale goes further to say that if you're gay, you will be hounded and hated for it, but it's possible to have successful relationships, to be happy, plus it can be fun to be weird and different. Praetorius is key to making all of this work and making Bride work. What's interesting is it's Praetorius who's key, not Henry. The creature is a little bit because he's being used as the metaphor for the outcast, but I feel like it wouldn't quite succeed in the same way without Pretorius as that camp fun character. What's further is we both agreed that Bride's fear is about forcing you into heteronormativity, into being something that you're not. Yet now we have the son of Frankenstein, which implies that Henry fell into normativity after all. <laughs> well, you know, because everything in Bride was metaphorical. Yeah, definitely. So, Sarah, um, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, Son of Frankenstein comes to us after a three-year gap in the making of horror films. Yeah, what changed in movie culture or in American culture that people were, like, interested in horror again? So, we start with the Regina Wilshire Theatre in Los Angeles, a small neighborhood theater that was on the verge of bankruptcy. It's 1938, and theater management was trying anything to get audiences into seats. As a last-ditch idea, uh, the theater's manager, Emil Uman, rented prints of Dracula and Frankenstein from Universal for a flat rate of $99 for what was billed to be a four-day weekend run of a double feature of those two movies. Unexpectedly, 
the double bill was a smash hit. Uh, the screening sold out no matter how many times per day they showed the double bill. And soon there were lineups around the block. Uman began running the program 21 hours a day to packed screenings <laughs> with LAPD called in for crowd control for the lines. Wow. Yeah. Uh, it was an unexpected phenomenon. Now, the fall of the horror genre had been hard for its stars, as Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi both found themselves typecast in a genre that no one wanted to make. Boris Karloff appeared in two films in 1937 and two films in 1938. And in half of those movies, he was acting in Yellowface in a knockoff of 20th Century Fox's more popular Charlie Chan series. Mm -hmm. Bela Lugosi had only one acting job in all of 1937 as the mad scientist villain in a Republic serial called SOS Coast Guard. On January 5th, 1938, his son, Bella Lugosi Jr., was born to Bella and his fourth wife, Lillian. Bella was so poor at the time that he had to make use of the Screen Actors Guild's relief fund to afford the hospital bills from the birth of his son. His only work in 1938 was a radio appearance with Karloff singing on the Baker's Broadcast program. By August, his mansion had been foreclosed on, and the Lugosi family was living in a rented bungalow. Of course, it didn't help that Lugosi's morphine addiction was getting worse all the time. Meanwhile, across town, Dracula and Frankenstein at the Regina Theater was such a sensation that Emil Uman figured that he could hire Bella to make public appearances at the screenings, emceeing the double bill in character as Dracula. <laughs> These public appearances saved the Lugosi family from financial ruin in 1938. Now, the phenomenon at the Regina had not gone unnoticed by the executives at Universal Pictures. 500 new prints of Dracula and Frankenstein were struck and rented out to cinemas across the country under a Universal-funded publicity campaign in order to replicate the Regina's success across America. This time, however, the rental rates would be weekly, not flat rates, and Universal pulled their prints from the Regina after the double bill had played there near continuously for four weeks, essentially shutting Uman out after he had shown Universal the path to success. The 1938 Dracula Frankenstein double bill re-release ended up making $500,000 for the studio in profits. They even hired Lugosi to do a nationwide tour of personal appearances to promote the campaign. Do you know why they went with Bella and didn't do anything with Karloff? Because Bella didn't have any work coming from anyone else and could be gotten real cheap because he was desperate. Ah. Now, it became clear that a new horror movie was needed for the 1939 release schedule to take advantage of this newfound public enthusiasm. Preferably something with both Lugosi and Karloff in it for promotional reasons, but with not a lot of Lugosi in the actual movie as he was considered a risk by the studio. Because of his addiction? Yeah, and his, like, other personality problems that had caused the studio issues in the past. Mm. Thus, 
it was decided to embark on a sequel to Bride of Frankenstein, uh, reviving Frankenstein instead of Dracula because, you know, it would be more Karloff than Lugosi. Willis Cooper was hired to write the screenplay, and he was a writer who at that point was primarily known for his horror anthology radio series, the gory but popular Lights Out, which pioneered that genre. Uh, It had grisly sound effects, twist endings, experimental uses of point of view, and other techniques at a time when most radio stations in the midnight time slot were just playing music. Uh, It became this huge hit. Uh, Lights Out has been credited with sort of defining the conventions of radio drama, and every episode was written by Willis Cooper, from the show's premiere in 1934 to the time its success allowed him to leave for Hollywood to become the screenwriter for what would be Son of Frankenstein. That's really cool. Yeah, I thought it was too. Uh, I feel like a, a direct descendant of this guy, having written for radio horror anthology shows. <laughs> Universal knew that Lugosi would work for cheap, and they wanted him mainly for his name on the marquee. So they instructed Cooper to write him a very small part, uh, that of the mad hunchback Igor, that would require Lugosi to only have to shoot for a week of the film's shooting schedule, and then they signed him at a rate of $500 a week. So their plan was to just pay him $500 for this whole movie. But him seeing that $500 a week, he'd be super into it. Yeah, absolutely. That's a real cheap move. Uh Uh-huh. Oof. Boris Karloff would, of course, be returning as the monster. Uh, And Jack Pierce would, of course, be returning to once again create the iconic makeup. While the character of Frankenstein had been left alive at the end of Bride of Frankenstein, Colin Clive's death in 1937 meant that there needed to be the creation of a new protagonist, the titular son of Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. Universal wanted Peter Lorre in the role, uh, but Lorre was desperate to leave behind what he called boogeyman roles, (laughs) And he was at the time enjoying playing the hero in the Mr. Moto film series, which was his own Charlie Chan ripoff series that ran for eight films between 1937 and 1939. When it came to finding a director for the movie, you might think that they would go to James Whale, who had directed the first two. The relationship ended rockily, to say the least, uh, after Dracula's daughter. Showboat. Showboat. It's all showboat's fault. Yeah. James Whale had fallen out of favor with the studio bosses and basically had been relegated to B-movies at this point. So, to direct, Universal brought in Roland V. Lee. Lee was born in 1891 in Findlay, Ohio, the son of a suffragette newspaper owner. Awesome. He had started in the film industry as an actor in 1917 and then transitioned to directing in 1920. And by 1926, he was working for Paramount, where he directed The Wolf of Wall Street and the first two Fu Manchu movies, among others. I do not know that the recent Wolf of Wall Street was like a remake. Yeah, it's not like an exact remake, because like the recent one's set in the 80s, and the story, you know, it has like cocaine and naked people in it. Um, But it's like similar themes, and Martin Scorsese's a big old movie buff, so he took the title. Ah. In the mid-1930s, Lee bounced from studio to studio, 
with a specialty in the new swashbuckler genre, directing Count of Monte Cristo in 1934, Cardinal Richelieu in 1935, and The Three Musketeers later that year. Lee soon took charge of the production, starting with lobbying successfully for actor Basil Rathbone for the lead role of Wolf von Frankenstein. (laughs) Why would you name your kid Wolf? I guess they're German. Yeah, it's it's reasonable. Okay. Born Philip Sinjin Basil Rathbone in Johannesburg, South Africa in 1892 to the prestigious Rathbone family, his father was a mining engineer who was accused of being a spy by the Boers, which necessitated the family fleeing to Britain when Basil was three. He began acting in 1911, despite his father's wish for him to have a conventional career, appearing in a touring Shakespearean theatrical company. He served in the First World War alongside Claude Rains, becoming an intelligence officer and rising to the rank of captain. After his brother died in the war, he became, quote, unconcerned about danger, end quote, in the eyes of his superiors, requesting to become a frontline scout and scouting enemy positions in daylight instead of at night, wearing a camouflage suit to make him look like a tree. (laughs) What? He survived the war with a military cross award for conspicuous daring. Conspicuous daring? (laughs) After the war, he continued acting on the stage, primarily in Shakespeare, but in other plays also. In 1926, he appeared in The Captive, a show about lesbian love. He was arrested, along with all the rest of the cast, when the NYPD shut the show down. New York lesbians wore violets to show solidarity with the cast, and then New York State passed a law outlawing depictions of homosexuality on stage because of the play. Rathbone was furious over this law, as he believed homosexuality needed to be brought out into the open of society. Nice. Violets as symbols of women-loving women actually goes back to the Victorian era, Mm -hmm. which is really cool. His film career began in the silent era, but like many stage-trained actors, he benefited greatly from the introduction of sound. He became known for portraying suave villains in costume dramas in (laughs) films like David Copperfield, Anna Karenia, A Tale of Two Cities, Adventures of Marco Polo, Captain Blood, and... The Adventures of Robin Hood in 1938, and it was his role as Sir Guy of Gisborne in that movie that really put him on the map. Rathbone, like many other actors in this period, looked down on horror as a genre, but took the opportunity so that he could play a protagonist instead of a villain for a change. Lee was appalled at Universal's attempt to lowball Bella Lugosi, so he threw out Willis Cooper's script uh, about a day before filming was to begin, in order to rewrite the story to incorporate the character of Igor Moore. The production had been greenlit in October and started filming on November 9th, 1938, with Lee and Cooper writing the scenes the day before they were to be shot in order to keep Lugosi in the movie working at $500 a week for the entire duration of the shoot, which ended on January 5th, 1939. Nice. Lee wanted to shoot the movie in Technicolor, going so far as to shoot Technicolor test footage of Karloff in the monster makeup, which you can find by searching for on YouTube. Oh, neat. 
but he was overruled by the studio due to the cost of Technicolor. He enlisted the services of Oscar-winning art director Jack Otterson to create massive sets for the film in the German Expressionist style. And all in all, he took the film far over budget, from (laughs) the initial $250,000 to a final cost of $420,000. That's like double. Yeah, it's also more than what the original Frankenstein cost or what Bride of Frankenstein cost. I guess like part of that cost would be like Bella's... Yeah, keeping Bella in the movie. Yeah. Doing Technicolor tests, rewriting the script so you have to keep paying the writer, too, because yeah. you've kept him on longer than, like, what was initially agreed to. Yeah. Son of Frankenstein marks the return of Lionel Atwill to the horror genre after some time away. We last saw him in Mark of the Vampire. He's appeared in 15 films in the four years since, including Captain Blood and The Road Back. The film's female lead is actress Josephine Hutchinson. Born in 1903, her mother was actress Leona Roberts, and it was through her mother's connections that she began acting at age 13 in 1917 in silent films. She married in 1924 to a stage director, but began an affair with actress Ava Legaliem in 1926, which led to Hutchinson being divorced in 1930 and the press dubbing her La Galliem's Shadow, which was a code word for lesbian. Hmm. In uh, did, did they give each other violets? I don't know. By 1939, Hutchinson was married again and La Galliem was busy seeing a different woman. The youngest member of the movie's cast was four-year-old Donnie Dunigan as Peter von Frankenstein. He had won a Hollywood talent contest earlier that year and had had a role in Roland Lee's film Mother Carrie's Chickens. <laughs> Today, he is perhaps best remembered as the voice of young Bambi in the original 1942 animated film. Okay. That would be his last film... Uh, as he sort of grew out of the child actor thing. And afterwards, he joined the Marines at age 18, served three tours in Vietnam, became the youngest Marine drill instructor ever, was awarded the Bronze Star and three Purple Hearts, and rose to the rank of Major. He is now retired and lives in San Angelo, Texas. Damn. Bambi! (laughs) Yeah. On Boris Karloff's 51st birthday... His fourth wife, Dorothy Stein, gave birth to Karloff's first and only child, Sarah Karloff. Filming was still ongoing on Son of Frankenstein, and so Boris Karloff had to be rushed from the set to the hospital while still in full monster makeup. Yes. Also, I thought Boris Karloff was just his stage name? Correct. But his daughter took that name too? Yes. Uh, even though, like, legally I think she was born Sarah Pratt, but she's taken the name Sarah Karloff. Okay. She's actually the currently, she's still alive. She's the manager of her father's estate, runs his website, is in charge of any, like, licensing deals for his uh, image and likeness, takes all of that very seriously. Cool. Karloff was reportedly upset by the expansions to Lugosi's character uh, when his own character had been reduced largely to an inarticulate brute again with relatively little screen time. He felt he was being edged out of his own movie. He went on record as saying that there was, quote, not much left in the character of the monster, uh, and also felt that he was being turned into, quote, an oafish prop. 
Son of Frankenstein would mark the final time that Karloff would play the role. Makes sense if he's getting that frustrated with it. Mm -hmm. Son of Frankenstein was released on January 13th, 1939, just a week after the much-over-schedule film completed shooting. Uh, It was a huge hit for Universal, uh, contributing to a record-setting year for the company with a profit of a million dollars. Critical reception at the time was mixed, with the New York Times paying the movie the backhanded compliment of saying that it was made, quote, by a good director in the best traditions of cinematic horror, end quote, so you'll be able to enjoy yourself when you, quote, laugh at the nonsense, end quote, of what the Times called the, quote, silliest picture ever made, end quote. Okay. In general, the quality of the production was praised, as was Lugosi's performance, even as the movie was looked down upon by critics for being horror. Modern critical assessments generally regard this movie as the last good Frankenstein movie of the original (laughs) Universal series, and also tend to single out Lugosi for praise. That's all really interesting. How are we going to watch it? Well, uh, Son of Frankenstein is available to stream on PlayStation Video and iTunes, and it's on DVD and Blu-ray as part of the Frankenstein Legacy Collection from Universal Home Video. So we're seeing it on DVD. So while we settle in to watch Son of Frankenstein, if you'd like to check out the previous Frankenstein episodes, that would be episode 26 and episode 48, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com, or check us out on SoundCloud, I guess. Like I said, in the meantime, we'll be watching the film, and you will hear a brief musical interlude before we come back. See you on the other side, everybody. Every town in every part of the world has one street where things out of the ordinary happen. In the town of Mayfield Falls, that street is Darkside Drive. Darkside Drive is a live horror anthology series about the hidden secrets of disturbing characters. After a successful run of two seasons on CJSW Radio in Calgary, Canada, all 18 episodes are now available online at Apple Podcasts or at www.darksidedrive.com. Creators Don Roth and Justin Guild, along with the talented ensemble of the Calgary Radio Playhouse, invite you to explore a new generation of radio drama as you make your way down the terrifying length of Dark Side Drive. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Son of Frankenstein from 1939, directed by... Roland V. Lee. Ben, what did you think? Son of Frankenstein is dope as hell, y'all. Cool. I would agree. (laughs) I really enjoyed watching this movie. Yeah. Uh, It's not the first time I've seen it, but it's a really good movie. Yeah, and it was cool to watch it in the context of the show. Yeah. By that I mean, like, not just like an average viewer, but having the knowledge and the Knowing the history of both, like, the American film industry and horror genre and all of that, that I think enhanced my enjoyment of it. 
So why don't you tell us what it's about? Sure. So, I have a feeling it's about the son of Frankenstein. You are correct. It is much more about the son of Frankenstein than Bride of Frankenstein was about the Bride of Frankenstein. Okay. So the biggest problem with watching Son of Frankenstein in 2018 <laughs> is that even more than the first two movies, this is basically the movie Young Frankenstein is based on. So if you are familiar with that movie it becomes very difficult to take Son of Frankenstein in the manner it was intended without thinking of the spoof. That is very true. There, uh, <laughs> there are a lot of scenes in Son of Frankenstein that are recreated pretty much exactly in Young Frankenstein, just with, you know, jokes added. It's sort of like an airplane situation that way. And it can be surprising if you see Young Frankenstein first how much of what maybe you thought was a joke is just a thing in Son of Frankenstein. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. So, in our Bride of Frankenstein episode, we talked about retcons. We kind of introduced that concept, retroactive continuity, and there are more of those in Son of Frankenstein. For me, the biggest one is the appearance of the Frankenstein Castle, which was a turn-of-the-century manor house in the original, and sort of a gothic castle in Bride of Frankenstein, and it has morphed yet again into a sort of colossal structure built firmly in the impractical style of 1920s German Expressionism. It looks like it's come out of the Prague of the Golem or something. And it's great. (laughs) The laboratory, which exploded in the climax of the second film, is no longer an abandoned lighthouse some great distance away from the Frankenstein castle. It's now just on the estate grounds. Yeah, kind of like how someone has the garage for their car. The Frankensteins just have a laboratory. Right. Uh, It's still blown up, but it's also now built atop a lake of sulfur that there was no indication of in the previous movies. (laughs) Other retcons include... The first two movies were set in the town of Ingolstadt in Germany. I think they set them there because that is where uh, Victor Frankenstein attended university in the novel. Mm -hmm. Now, in this movie, the town is called Frankenstein. And it's clear that it's not just like a case where it's been renamed in the intervening years because the entire plot of the movie revolves around the Frankensteiners hating the family. Uh, likely, this is just sort of a simple continuity error from the writer of this movie, missing that little detail in the originals, and assuming that since there was a Baron Frankenstein, that has to be the name of the town. Mm. Strengthening that is that the family has been renamed. They're now the Von Frankensteins, with Colin Clive's character's name being Germanicized to Heinrich Von Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. But we're still in this kind of weird fairy tale version of Germany. It's definitely more modern, but it's still kind of a vague time setting. The German Expressionist sets really help with that feeling, too. For sure, absolutely. We've joked before with these Universal movies about, like, what year is it? And you start to be able to kind of narrow the options down. But the original film took place in a time that had both Tesla coils but also German nobility, which sort of suggested the early 1900s before World War I. The second movie, confusingly enough, had that framing narrative of Mary Shelley in 1816, 
but then carried on from the original movie and featured things like headstones with dates from the 1890s on them. Yeah. So Son of Frankenstein seems to follow through on this idea that the first two movies took place around the turn of the century because we've got Wolf von Frankenstein, uh, played by Basil Rathbone, who wasn't even born when Bride of Frankenstein was happening, and now he's old enough to be married and have a kid of his own. So the setting, therefore, seems to be contemporary Germany, 1939, except ignoring the political situation of 1939, which was fraught, to put it lightly. Yes, we've talked a lot about that. There aren't any Nazis in the town of Frankenstein, somehow. Somehow. So the implication is that Wolf was raised by his mother in England and never knew his father, who died in Germany. To me, that sort of implies that Henry and Elizabeth got divorced at some point. Uh, and now, Wolf lives in America with his wife, Elsa, and his son, Peter. Uh, but he is returning to the village to reclaim his birthright as Baron. Again, an American citizen returning to Germany to become a Baron. Not weird at all in 1939. <laughs> the village uh, doesn't want them there. They are afraid that he's going to pick up where his father left off. And although Wolf tells them that their fears are groundless... That is basically exactly what he does, uh, as he intends to redeem his father's name. He is repeatedly visited by Inspector Krogh, whose arm was ripped off by the monster when he was a boy, and he now uses an articulated prosthetic. Krogh warns him of the danger that the villagers pose. Six people have died under mysterious circumstances lately, and the village is inclined to believe a returned monster was the culprit. Exploring the ruins of the destroyed lab, Wolf meets Igor, a blacksmith who was hanged by a jury of eight for the crime of grave robbing. So they say. So they say. Um, this is Bela Lugosi's character. <laughs> Igor was pronounced dead after his neck was broken, but he survived, though he is considered legally dead by the village. <laughs> he reveals to Frankenstein that the monster is still alive. Uh, that he has been looking after the monster, and that the monster is functionally immortal. The bride is just never brought up. It's like the second movie didn't happen, practically. Pretty much. In examining the monster, uh, Wolf discovers in one of my favorite retcons that while his father thought that he had tapped into a kind of energy beyond the ultraviolet when he created the monster as said in the original movie, Wolf has discovered that what his father actually tapped into was the power of cosmic rays, which means that the same thing that gives the Fantastic Four their powers is what powers Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> How he tapped into cosmic rays from lightning is still not very well explained. Wolf begins to experiment on the monster, first to heal it after a recent trauma, and then later in a desire to correct its mental deficiency. Meanwhile, Igor has been controlling the monster to get it to kill the men who convicted him, making sure that his own location is known and visible when the murders happen. When the last two jurors are killed, the old town mob starts up, and Krogh comes to try and arrest Wolf for his own protection. Wolf has been sort of descending into a kind of paranoic madness... And he sets off to kill Igor. Uh, when the monster discovers Igor's dead body, he flies into a rage and kidnaps Frankenstein's son, Peter. 
This leads to a showdown at the lab, where Krogh shoots the monster before Wolf swings in on a rope and kicks the monster into the sulfur pit, where he explodes. Yeah, he really does just explode, doesn't he? The Frankenstein family then returns to America, seemingly scot-free for all the murder, to the relief of the village. The end. And they give the... They give the deed to the castle to the villagers. Yeah, to do with as they will. Right. So Son of Frankenstein is dope, (laughs) y'all. I still can't get over that the monster explodes when he hits the sulfur pits. Yeah, the whole pit explodes. Oh, it's so fun. Yeah, it's a very fun movie, that is for sure. I think what kind of kicks off the fun for me in this film is the German Expressionist sets. Oh yeah, and it's like from right when it starts, because the movie starts with like the gate outside the castle, and it's just like got that German Expressionism thing of like, what's a straight line? What are parallel lines? Everything's at weird angles to each other, and like the word Frankenstein is written in like a Caligari-ass font. Like, the whole thing is like that. I think I burst into laughter from the sheer joy when they get inside the castle and it's just this stark-ass hallway with this rickety, weird weird staircase. I I just love it so much. Um, The house makes no sense, like, from a design perspective. It really doesn't. And what's really interesting to me is that you're totally right that the German expressionism in Son of Frankenstein is straight from Caligari, mm-hmm. like right back to Classic. the form's origins. Yeah, absolutely. It's not the continuation of the evolution. Yeah, and with seeing the development of German expressionism from the German films like Caligari to seeing it in the U.S. with Cat in the Canary, Mad Love, and Walking Dead, which like is where we really kind of see a, a proto-film-noir type look. Like, Bride of Frankenstein was German expressionist in its artificiality, mm-hmm. just always being on sets and stuff, but this just really goes back another step. And it's also really interesting to me because in our episode on Fairman Maria, the last German film, the last Nazi Germany film, horror film, I talked so much about like how interesting it was to see that while it's all set in a natural setting and filmed on location, they still use German expressionism through sound. Mm-hmm. And yet, now in this, I don't know if you can even call it a renaissance of horror, I'm presuming, because I know that there's a lot of movies coming. Sure. Um, But we're going right back to not the American roots of German Expressionism, but the German roots. I think a big part of that is the three-year gap that we've experienced, because it's created a discontinuity in the development of the genre. Mm. So, you know, we saw German Expressionism start with... Caligari and sort of evolving into Hands of Orlock and then evolving into, you know, the remake of Student of Prague and then evolving into Cat and Canary and the Universal horror movies and then into stuff like Walking Dead. And what we were seeing was a slow evolution from German Expressionism into what we would now more recognize as film noir. By 1939, film noir is getting pretty close to just being film noir. It's not, you know, quite 100% there yet, but it's pretty darn close. And I think filmmakers in 1939, if you said to them German Expressionism, they aren't going to think that modern form at the end of that evolution, because now that's become something else. Mm. They're going to think the classic thing. We've had enough discontinuity, and it's enough, like, new people 
coming in, like, all the people making Son of Frankenstein are new folks to us anyways, that to them, they're thinking the old stuff. This is homage, right, rather than a continued evolution. Yeah, and I love it. (laughs) It's beautiful. One of, I think, the greatest strengths of Son of Frankenstein is that it's not plucking the bones from Mary Shelley's novel anymore. It's free to kind of do its own thing. Exactly. The first two movies often kind of come across as like a patchwork of scenes from the novel, scenes from the stage play, and then like new ideas. This movie's freed from the bonds of adaptation, right? So it can just tell a good story. And what's interesting here is the movie gets to take the time to be focused on things like characterization and narrative because we aren't trying to get through, oh, we need to do this scene and that scene. You know what I mean? Definitely, yeah. Like, we don't need to know that Inspector Crow wanted to be a soldier and then his arm got ripped off so he can never have that. Like, that's not really important to the story, but it's a bit of characterization that helps you understand who he is, right? We don't really get that in some of the previous movies. Like, Dr. Pretorius, for how important he is in Bride of Frankenstein, just kind of shows up out of nowhere. Yeah, shows up to fuck things up. It's only occasionally that the seams of this movie being rewritten as it was shot show, Mm -hmm. which I think is very impressive. Like, there's instances where scenes don't quite seem to line up in continuity. Like, it's a little bit confusing sometimes with scene transitions, how many times Krogh is supposed to have visited them. There's also the way that Like, the structure of the movie itself seems to involve a few redundant visits from Krogh to the castle. Like, looking at the movie, there's a way you maybe could have streamlined the flow of the plot. But given that this movie was being written on the day every day, it's remarkably more cohesive as a story than you would expect. There's a real sense of a unified narrative being told here that was just sort of occasionally missing from the first two movies, in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree. It's definitely very impressive. And kind of, to that point, I think two of, kind of like the MVPs of Sun are Basil Rathbone and Lionel Atwill Mm -hmm. as Wolf and the Inspector, respectively. Um, I think they both do a really good job of showing their, of showing the characters, um, motivations, their reactions to things. Uh, In the case of Rathbone, his descent into madness a bit. And I really have to give uh, a lot of credit to At Will with his physical acting, Mm -hmm. because obviously it's not a real fake, real fake? A real fake arm he has. He's like, it's still his own arm, but he finds a way to do some good kind of black comedy things with it. When the first instance of, like, hearing that the monster has visited Peter, the kid, and Peter's talking about, like, a giant, and how the giant, like, uh, grabbed his arm. The inspector grabs his own arm in, like, remembrance of his own trauma, Mm -hmm. um, in, like, a really, I don't know, it was a subtle but, like, really good acting moment. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing with the arm is something that was very excellently lampooned in Young Frankenstein. But seeing it in Son of Frankenstein, if you can kind of get past that, you really have to acknowledge that the physical acting that Atwell's doing is really fucking good. It's not only that it's convincing, it's that he thinks 
of things that you might not necessarily think of with, you know, thinking about how his arm works, right? Where are the joints? Where are the swivels? Um, because it's, you know, we don't really see it. It's, it's under, you know, clothes and stuff. But, like, there's that great scene where he kind of puts it into a position and then, like, with his real hand, takes off his monocle and, like, slips it into the between the fingers <laughs> of the prosthetic uh, so that the prosthetic's holding it and then, like, wipes it with a cloth or something. Like, it's just, it's a very good bit of acting. Overall, Atwell's performance is one of restraint, but also this kind of fierce intelligence. The thing about the two men you pointed out, Rathbone and Atwell, is that in a lot of ways, the movie's about the tension between the two of them. These guys who, when they start the movie, are very amiable towards each other. But, like, each one kind of knows what the deal is with the other, right? And it's just a matter of the tension of waiting for the other shoe to drop. Mm-hmm. Right? Definitely. I think in a lot of ways, if he's not the protagonist of the movie, because that's Wolf, Krogh is the hero of the movie. Definitely. He's the one who, like, confronts the monster, gets his arm, like, his fake arm ripped off again, and is shooting at him. Yeah. Basil Rathbone gives an utterly captivating performance. Um, throughout the movie, Wolf's sort of facade of normalcy cracks, and we see that in him as the movie continues, um, and the realities of what he's become involved in kind of come crashing down around him. If I had an explanation for why... Son of Frankenstein manages to feel more like a unified story, even though it was written on the fly. <laughs> the conclusion I ultimately have to come to is that on some level, Willis Cooper is just a better writer than John Balderston ever was. Oh! Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, you singled out these two guys. This movie is really about three people. This mm-hmm. is a three person movie. It's Wolf von Frankenstein, Inspector Krogh, and Igor. Yes. Yeah, I was going to get to Igor. Bella Lugosi is clearly having an amazing time with this part. I think on some level, even if he was not told outright by the director of like why they were rewriting and having him come into scenes, like he knew that they were like extending his contract. And so I think you can see his appreciation for the other people on set in the film. And I think he's just, like, happy to be employed as something other than Dracula, too. Yeah, he he steals every scene that he's in. Um, we were sort of making some jokes because there are a lot of scenes where he's just kind of in them. Not really saying or doing anything, just in them uh, that sort of remind you that they were rewriting scenes to keep him in the movie longer. The joke we had was like, Wolf von Frankenstein experiments on the monster. Also, Igor is there, like, is the rewritten version of the script. But even when he's just sort of standing there looking at things, he's the one your attention is on, you know? Um, And I think that's because he's kind of the manipulator. Yeah, for sure. He's the Pretorius of this movie, in a way. Like, it's almost impossible to imagine the movie without him. Yeah. All of his lines have that duplicity to them, Mm -hmm. right? Where, you know, if Igor says, oh yeah, don't worry about that guy, he's not going to tell anyone, that means that Igor has killed him, you know? There's, (laughs) There's a lot of things that Igor says that means Igor has killed that person. 
And, like, so many of his lines have this, like, black comedy gallows humor to them, which is, you know, appropriate for Igor. That makeup that Jack Pierce does for Igor, like, people talk about that Frankenstein makeup. Can we talk about that Igor makeup? Yeah, that creepy, like, neck bone sticking out. Yeah, he's got, like, his neck is broken, and so his head is cocked to one side with this, like, bone jutting up and it's not like through the skin or anything but it's just kind of there with the shape of it in his skin at one point he like knocks on it and it's got this just like knock on a skull kind of sound yeah yeah i think i said once on this show that i felt bell lugosi was well suited to playing revenge like vengeful figures and he is amazing here with that. Yeah, Igor definitely proves that. I think he's turning in one of the best performances of his career in this movie. Yeah, I would agree. There's just such a, like, glee in him for, you know, this revenge that he's taking on everybody. The scene where he's, like, coughing and, like, purposely coughs on one of the jurors he's planning on killing. Yeah. Um, and he's like, oh, sorry, sometimes I get bone in my throat. yeah bones stuck in my throat like yeah a lot of his lines are like that oh, for sure it's it's, so it's pretty fantastic unfortunately this focus on these three guys leaves the monster with very little to do a big part of that is the way the story is that like the creature was in a coma and was being like manipulated after like head trauma whatever by igor so he really is just like you could replace him with a robot. Yeah, he's just Igor's hitman, right? Yeah. He's odd job, you know? <laughs> um, you can see Karloff doing what he can with what he's given, but um, yeah, you can definitely see his frustration with it all. Yeah, I mean, the film basically ignores the monster's motivations, um, other than there's a kind of brief wordless scene between the monster and wolf that indicates the monster's unhappiness with his appearance and maybe a desire to have it changed. But there's not a lot to that scene. It's just wordless suggestion. And there's the finale with his anguish over Igor uh, and Igor's death. And that's about it. Mm -hmm. The sympathetic, misunderstood character from Wales movies is nearly gone in this film. So I think it's it's unsurprising that Karloff chose not to return after this, I think. Yeah. You know, especially seeing how his career's progressed and the roles like, you know, even, um, you know, it was three years ago at this point, but even stuff like The Man Who Changed His Mind, like, if you can get roles like that because you're Boris Karloff, why keep doing the monster shtick? Especially he's like 51 years old now. I think it's really interesting to think about this movie as like the renaissance of horror, um, and how Lugosi is, like, reveling in it. Mm -hmm. And Karloff is like, yeah, I shouldn't have come back to high school. I should have just kept going on with my life. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Because Lugosi never got to move on from horror, right? Mm -hmm. Karloff had done other things before. He got to do other things after. He had, you know, he hadn't worked a lot in the intervening three years um, that we didn't see a horror movie, but he worked more than Lugosi did, you know? He still made four films in that time. You know, he had his little Charlie Chan ripoff series going. Uh, you know, Lugosi had nothing. Yeah. That being said, like, it feels like, except perhaps Karloff, everyone seems to be having fun mm -hmm. in the movie. 
and everyone is really reveling in horror yes. with this movie because it's actually really freaking dark. Yeah. If you were to identify tonally what is different between this movie and the James Whale movies, there's a few ways you can consider that. One of the things that Son of Frankenstein lacks is the allegory from the whale movies. I mean, Son of Frankenstein explores questions of madness and family legacy and revenge, but it's not tackling any larger social issues like the first two movies were. Um, It's not about anything the way that those movies were. But what Son of Frankenstein is, is a horror movie. Just pure through and through. Yeah, like, it's got this shadowy cinematography from George Robinson. It's got those oppressive sets from Jack Otterson. It's got an atmospheric score from Frank Skinner. And it feels much more interested in actually scaring its audience than the James Whale movies ever really did. Yeah, and I I really appreciate it for doing that. Like, we see so much more violence from the creature we see Mm -hmm. a guy nearly like pretty much run over by his cart like we cut just before it's like fully done but i was like how did we get this close with the code Mm -hmm. um we hear the story of the inspector's arm being ripped off as a kid and then we also see his arm ripped off by the creature in the climax and the terror and descent to madness from rathbone like it's all like really hecka dark And I love that it goes for it. Mm -hmm. It's not hedging its bets like we were seeing with the last few films in 1936. Yeah. I get why, but it was still a bit surprising that, like, they went for it after this three-year break. Yeah, and, like, the way the movie is made matches the story, right? There's so many great shots in this movie that are dark and atmospheric, Yeah, I mean, this movie wants to scare you. Um, And I think a big difference between it and, like, Bride, for instance, they're both fun and exciting movies, and I think they're even both over the top and sort of cranked to 11. (laughs) But what Son of Frankenstein is avoiding is the camp from Bride. And whether that's a good or bad thing depends on your own personal tolerance levels for camp. But what it does do, it helps Son of Frankenstein maintain a consistent tone throughout, which is the tone of a grisly horror story. And, you know, Bride sometimes had problems with that, where it leaned into comedy sometimes, in a way that this movie doesn't. Mm-hmm. Or at least when this movie is funny, it's funny in a, in a gallows humor way, like we've said, And we've sort of talked in previous episodes about that kind of humor being better suited to maintaining a consistent tone in these movies, right? Yeah. I think the only times that you start to feel a little bit of that tonal whiplash that we identified in those early crop of movies is when that friggin' kid opens his mouth and you're like, what? What did he say? Yeah, Peter von Frankenstein has, you know, the kid's four, but he's got, you know, one of those just high-pitched, screaming, I'm a four-year-old voices. And it's, it's, it's difficult because it's like this interruption of cutesy into the narrative. And he's really only in the movie to give the monster someone to menace at the end. Yeah. So you're having to wonder, like, is the cutesy shit that you get throughout the movie with him worth that payoff? I guess 
you have to give them points because if they didn't threaten Peter, they would have to be threatening Wolf's wife, Elsa, and that would be the exact same as the climax of the previous two Frankenstein movies where Elizabeth got threatened, so, like, points for not doing the damsel in distress thing, I guess, but it also means we have to put up with Peter. Yeah. I'm gonna go hunting for tigers! Oh, God. Anyways... I think you hit the nail on the head in talking about its consistent tone, because this film could so easily be a thriller-adventure cop-type movie Mm -hmm. with the inspector hunting down the guy who ripped off his arm as a kid, but it's not. Yeah, that's the thing. Even though Krogh is the hero, like we've said, Wolf is the protagonist, and Wolf being the protagonist is what makes it a horror movie, because we're sticking with his point of view. Yeah, Like we've said, if you've seen Young Frankenstein, you'll get a bit more of the jokes in that movie, um, and you'll probably even find parts of Sun funny. But I think on its own, it's a very dark horror movie, especially for 1939, and I really can't wait to see what this new crop of horror films brings us. Yeah, for sure. It may lack the cultural significance of the first two Frankenstein movies, but it's an immensely enjoyable flick, and it should really get higher praise and more remembrance than it does. I think it's overshadowed by the whale movies to a degree, and I don't think it deserves to be. Mm-hmm. So how do you feel about ranking? Well, I think, unless you're on the exact same page I am, <laughs> this is going to be a contentious one. Okay, well, uh, where are you thinking? The real crux of this is... How do you think it stacks up to the other two Frankenstein movies? And that's tough, and we might upset people, depending on what happens here (laughs) today. I think there is an argument to be made that this is not as good as Bride of Frankenstein because it doesn't address those larger social issues, it's not really about something, it doesn't speak to all the things that Bride speaks to. You know, we had a two-hour-long episode on Bride of Frankenstein talking about all these important thematic elements, and, like, Sun doesn't really go there. So there's an argument to be made it's not as good as Bride, in which case my floor for my range is number nine, below Bride of Frankenstein, but above Dracula, because this is a better horror movie than Dracula. Okay. My ceiling... (laughs) is I feel like, you know, for the reasons we've talked about, that this movie has a consistent tone as a horror film, there's an argument that could be made that it's better than Bride of Frankenstein because it's, you know, actually a horror movie and not, like, a kind of weird goth camp movie. So maybe it's better than Bride. Also, it has a consistent plot and a real willingness to, like, go there on the violence and, like, the grisliness and, like, the dark themes that the original Frankenstein didn't really have a um, willingness to do with its occasional sidesteps into, like, wedding planning and shit. You know, the original had that inconsistency of tone, and the original has a real, like, made-up-as-it-went kind of feel, even though this movie was literally made-up-as-it-went This movie has a way more satisfying finale and climax than the original Frankenstein. So I think there's an argument that could be made that Son of Frankenstein is better than Frankenstein. And if it's better than Frankenstein, you know, it's probably better than The Invisible Man. And if it's better than The Invisible Man, it's probably better than The Black Cat. Oh, boy. Because, like, The Black Cat's kind of a mess. And, like, yeah, 
this is also a Karloff Lugosi film, but like Lugosi's character in this movie is way better than his black cat character. And like, yeah, they're both German expressionists, but like, come on, like this movie, holy shit. Also Lionel Atwell and Basil Rathbone. So it's not just Karloff and Lugosi. It's like you're getting like four for the price of one here. So my ceiling on this one, my ceiling on this one is number five. Above Black Cat, but below Island of Lost Souls. Because, like, end of the day, Island of Lost Souls is real fucked up. Ooh. So that's my range, five to nine. Ooh. Bottom half of the top ten. Okay. So when I was looking at ranking, I was like, I don't want to think about the other movies. Let's just, like, think about where Son of Frankenstein feels based on the parts that I that really resonated with me. Sure. So I was looking more at um, kind of how it ranks in regards to its German expressionism. Mm-hmm. So for me, because of that, I looked at Caligari, which is at number 12, and I was like, because this is, like, doing it super well and, like, is, like, this really cool return, I really, I feel like this could go above Caligari. But I wasn't really sure where to go from there. So I kind of, like, looked at ranking in, like, two approaches. Okay. One with, like, the movie on its own terms, based on its German expressionism, really, and the horror that it has. Looking at it as the son of Frankenstein, Mm -hmm. I definitely see what you're saying about um, it being a better horror movie than Bride and Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. I don't know about The Invisible Man, If we think about how we see the protagonist in both those films kind of descend into madness, which do you think is more terrifying? The thing about Son of Frankenstein is we get to see the whole arc. Mm. Like, um, Whereas with Invisible Man, he's already a little loopy. Yeah, like Griffin in Invisible Man, he's already invisible when the movie starts, right? So he's already halfway there, and then he just, you know, gets worse. Now, granted... Griffin ends in a much more extreme place uh, where he's, like, blowing up trains and, like, murdering people and, like, causing, like, Batman villain-level crimes. But there's something very dramatically satisfying about Wolf because Basil Rathbone plays him so normal at the start of the movie. And then he's so off his rocker by the end of the movie. And it's a really... It's one of the things that contributes to the movie's sense of tension so much is that Wolf becomes such a bundle of nerves by the end of it that he's just shaking with, like, paranoia. I kind of prefer Son of Frankenstein. Okay. Now, when we did the Invisible Man episode, you likened the fear. It was not, like, an intentional fear put in by the makers of the movie, but it was relevant today because of the fears of anonymity. Mm-hmm. Or the terrors of anonymity. Son of Frankenstein, even looking at it in the context of today, still doesn't have any kind of societal no thing. No, that's the thing. It's it's not. It does not have that greater social contextual value that a lot of these top ten movies have. Right? Yeah. Like even Dracula's about something. Even if the thing that Dracula is about is foreigners. Am I right? <laughs> um. Son of Frankenstein, if it's about anything, is about the way that, like, the past impacts people. Because you have Wolf, who is 
driven to madness by the legacy of his father's work and his attempts to redeem that work. You have Krogh, whose every action is defined by this traumatic event in his childhood. And you have Igor, who is out for revenge because of, again, this event in his past, right? So everybody in this movie is driven by the past. The movie has thematic qualities. They're just not larger societal thematic qualities. And I think that kind of explains why I also don't feel comfortable putting Son of Frankenstein above the Black Cat. Because as much as the Black Cat is choppy, those characters are also driven by the past. And it's like the actual histories of that place in like Hungary mm-hmm. area like infiltrate the making of that film. For sure. So I, I, I would feel... Better if Son Son of Frankenstein went below the Black Cat. So I think it's really just a matter of, like, it seems like you want to put Son of Frankenstein above Invisible Man. I'm not quite sure because it's really hard to try to weigh that societal or cultural influence or thematic element that are in these top ten movies. How much weight does that have when it comes to being a horror movie? Because I think Invisible Man becomes more of a horror movie because of that relevance that you you noted in that episode. Well, I mean, it comes down to what do you want to get out of horror movies. I think for the two of us, that cultural aspect is very important. Yeah. Right? I think that's one of the reasons you and I really like horror movies is because they answer that question of, like, what was society afraid of at the time this movie was made? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's something that's a big deal for us. For other people, it's like, oh, man, did you see the gore in that one scene? That's a certain type of horror fan, and that's totally fine as well. We're, like, 40 years away from that kind of horror movie. So, like, that's why I had this range, right? Like, I'm I'm pretty good with being talked into anywhere in this range. What's between the bottom of my range and where you were looking around Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, right? Like, it's Dracula, Murders in the Zoo... Famine Maria Caligari. Okay. What's your opinion on this movie kind of in that range, between our two ranges? Well, Dracula is that high because of its iconic value. Um, So I feel like Son of Frankenstein could could kind of contend with that. You could also contend with Murders in the Zoo with how dark things get. I mean, Murders in the Zoo hits more scary moments for me, but I think Son of Frankenstein is dark enough to contend still? I think that the thing about Murders in the Zoo is it has those really dark moments, but it also has, like, that goofy reporter, like, fooling around with animals and stuff. Like, it zigzags on the tone more than Son of Frankenstein does, right? Definitely. So that's why, because Son of Frankenstein doesn't really zigzag, I'm willing to... Willing is the wrong word. I'm open to putting it above the first two Frankensteins. It's really just with Invisible Man that I feel like because it has that cultural, societal, whatever, maybe puts it just above. What do you, you know, I talked about it, but like, you know, you've been kind of avoiding the question of how you feel this movie compares to the other two Frankenstein movies. Yeah, I avoid it because (laughs) I, like, I really love Frankenstein and Bride is really good too. I feel like we're still in trouble because we didn't put Bride above the original like everyone else does. We didn't. I think we're in trouble because we didn't put it at number one. You know, like, (laughs) I feel like I feel like if we put Sun above both of them, 
we are going to be in even more trouble because I feel like the correct answer is putting bride at the top, right? Here's what I have to say about that. Like, if you want to just look at that this is a list of horror movies, and you want to just look at the horrific elements between Frankenstein and Bride, I think that they are fairly well comparable, Mm -hmm. but, like, because Frankenstein is kind of set, like, really solidifying what universal horror films look like, to me that's why it's kind of above Bride, is doing a lot more different things, and I think it's a huge development in the horror genre and things like that. But I, I, I'm still happy with where we've, we've put it. Thinking about those movies in comparison with Sun, the question that I come up with is, what's supposed to be scary in Bride of Frankenstein? Giving it the best benefit of the doubt, like, where are the scenes in Bride of Frankenstein that that movie, like, what's supposed to be terrifying about that movie? I feel like the thing about the two James Whale Frankensteins is what is scary about them is sort of a almost like a low-key morbidity uh, a sense of like unease that this isn't right a kind of macabre oh you shouldn't be digging up graves this is against the laws of nature I feel really wigged out by this kind of feeling mm-hmm. whereas Son of Frankenstein is actually out to frighten you you know exactly yeah that makes this really hard do we dare put it above Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. I'm, I'm okay with putting it above Frankenstein below the Invisible Man. So I feel like the proper place for Sun is above the first Frankenstein, below Invisible Man, and really, there's a lot of arguments I think that you could make for it either way. For me, the tonal consistencies is, like, key to recognizing just how much Son of Frankenstein is, like, doing the horror, not hedging its bets, not trying to balance between, like, comedy, wedding planning, whatever. It's actually, like, reveling in the horror Mm -hmm. in a way that the first boom of horror movies weren't really doing, and when they did, they got pushed back for it. Yeah, yeah, they got chopped to pieces by the censor boards. Yeah, whereas this movie is showing that, you know, this... I don't know why I keep saying renaissance. It was only a three-year break, but this renaissance of, of horror movies is the next development. Mm-hmm. Like, duh, it's a renaissance. The um, next generation. <laughs> it's interesting to think about the idea of, like, this movie is called Son of Frankenstein. And whenever you ask a parent, like, what do you hope for your kid? It's that they are in a world that's better, mm-hmm. right? And this film is in a world that's more accepting of horror movies in general. Or at least this movie in particular was released in a, in a moment where the studio was more willing to go to bat for it. Sure, yeah, absolutely. It's going to be interesting to see how, how long the convictions hold. For sure. You know, before everything starts coming back to those questions of censorship and... You know, does this go too far, and so on, right? Yeah, but I think we have to give credit to the fact that this movie goes for it. The people were excited to go for it. They weren't like, yeah, okay, I'll go for it. So to me, I think that means that the son has surpassed the father. Okay. It's disappointing because Roland Lee will not direct any more horror movies. This is his only one. Hmm. And I feel like maybe that's because... He went super over budget and rewrote the whole movie and 
did a bunch of other shit that the Universal executives didn't want him to do. But I would have liked to have seen, you know, more horror movies from this guy, for sure. Definitely. Okay, so if that's what we're doing, then this is entering the list at number seven, below The Invisible Man, above Frankenstein. So we've just got this, like, weird Frankenstein block of the list, I have to point out. But entering the list at number seven, Son of Frankenstein, from 1939, directed by Roland V. Lee. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can submit appeals, questions, concerns in our ask box. Um, You can check out the other episodes that we've mentioned today. And you can also uh, check out the YouTube list of other movies that we've watched. If you would like to get a hold of us, you can also email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. One of the ways that you can help out the show if you enjoy it is by leaving us a rating or review on any of those services. It helps the old algorithms show the show to other people. If you are a fan, another thing you can do to help us out is tell a friend about us. If you know anyone who's into horror movies, classic Hollywood, long-winded social analysis um (laughs) let them know about the show i'm sure they will enjoy it if you're feeling generous you can also help us out by going to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast and becoming a patron of the night patrons can support the show for as little as a dollar a month and it really helps us to keep the show going and improve it and we really appreciate it Patrons at higher levels get access to bonus audio, monthly horror short fiction, and if we hit our Patreon goal, we are going to start doing monthly specials on horror-adjacent movies like Young Frankenstein. Which would be so great. I would love to do Young Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Oi, well... Oh, boy. You remember your old friend, Todd Slaughter? Remember Todd Slaughter, Sarah? Yes. How could I forget Todd Slaughter? Well, we're watching The Face at the Window, aren't we? Aren't we, Sarah? I don't know. That's why I was asking. It's The Face at the Window from 1939. It's another Todd Slaughter, Victorian melodrama, horror, theatrical play turned into a movie. Quote a cookie? Yeah. Great. We'll see what this has in store for us, and we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.